Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 2nd, 2023. One of the themes of, of many recent shows is how wrong, perhaps even rotten, our financial system has become. We've done so many shows about this. We did one uh, last week with the American anti-corruption activist. He's actually originally a British foreign affairs uh, journalist, Frank Vogel, on, uh, on the American bankers and politicians enabling kleptocracy, kleptocrats around the world. Earlier today, we did a show with Raymond W. Baker, Invisible Trillions, How Financial Secrecy is Imperiling Capitalism uh, and Democracy. In fact, we're doing one uh, in a couple of weeks with the great FT journalist, uh, Martin Wolf, on the crisis of democratic capitalism, I think created in part by our financial markets. Uh, those are, of course, international or in the US. Um, in the UK, it would seem things are even worse. We did a show uh, last year with the British uh, financial journalist, the muckraking journalist Oliver Bullo on how Britain enables tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats and criminals. Um, he has a, a hit new book out, Butler to the World, How Britain Helps the World's Worst People Launder Money, Commit Crimes and Get Away with Anything. So it would seem as if bankers in general and perhaps British bankers have much to answer for. So we found you. A British banker, Robert Pickering, or an ex-banker. Um, he has uh, a new book out. He ran a, 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 a private bank called Casanova, uh, and he has a book out on his experience there. It's called Blue Blood, Casanova in the Age of Global Banking. He's talking to us from his home in East Sussex in southern England. Uh, Robert, I don't mean to pick on you of course it's horribly unfair to blame everything on you but would it be fair to say that there is a problem with our increasingly financialized economy uh, that's a pretty fair statement i mean the, the the problem with these kinds of discussions is that people tend to talk about banking as if it's a single homogeneous business and of course Banking covers a vast range of different activities. And, um, you know, the, at one end, you, essentially, you have individuals taking large, risky bets with depositors and shareholders' money, paying themselves large bonuses out of profits, which subsequently proved to be illusory, and then leaving the taxpayer to clean up the mess afterwards. And, you know, and that's, that's the kind of thing which drives most financial crises over the years. Um, <clears throat> the tale I tell really about my old firm was really a different model, which started in the, well, it started in the 19th century, but the way that the way that business was done really persisted right through into the 70s or 80s, a partnership model where the business was owned by uh, the individuals who worked in it. And the, to the extent that you took any risk at all, you were doing it with your own money. So you ended up with a much more risk averse and much more client centric um, business. And at various points over the years, there've been efforts to try to 
encourage businesses to go back to that sort of model. And what my book about is about, in essence, is how we took a business that pursued that model, uh, a private owner-managed business, and um, as it were, transitioned it into something which was more like a modern investment bank, the stresses and strains that that involved. We subsequently went into business with JP Morgan. We sold half our business to JP Morgan and really talking about the cultural strains that that, that, that involved. I'd like to think that um, we weren't involved in the kind of extreme examples that, you, that you've just mentioned and that your books, um, that these kinds of books deal with, but there's no question that, uh, that this kind of activity has brought the, the financial system and the financial centers in, into disrepute. One thing I have to say, Robert, is that you, your bank has the best name of all. I'm not going to make any Casanova jokes. You've probably heard those a million times before, but Casanova is a wonderful name for a bank, very romantic. I remember when I left university and I went to university in England in the 1980s, you seem of a fairly similar vintage. Um, People used to talk about banking and, oh, you're going to do this and I'm going to go into banking. I never really understood what it was. How did you find your way? Tell me a little bit about your background. Were you always blue-blooded? Where did you grow up? Uh, Well, I was born in London. My parents were actually first-generation Australian immigrants. My father worked both Wow, reverse. So whereabouts in London? Uh, I I grew up in Kensington. And uh, so... Good working-class neighbourhood, Robert, yes? Absolutely. And, uh, well, there's another whole discussion about that. But, I mean, no, I grew up in a sort of comfortable uh, middle class, but, as I say, first-generation immigrant household. Um, my father, the dentist, wanted me to be a lawyer because I think that's fairly typical of professionals. They kind of want to, they want their kids to, in their own eyes, be the next rung up on the professional ladder. He wanted me to be a barrister. I ended up qualifying as a solicitor. But I think I realised quite early on that it was a bit too much like hard work for my life. So I switched fairly early. And I actually became a stockbroker rather than a banker. And as you rightly say, I was, when I was at university, a lot of people used to talk about going into merchant banking, but if you'd asked any of them to define what a merchant bank did, I don't think uh, any of them, myself included, could have given you a, a, a right answer. But I was always more inside of it, so I became um, uh, a broker, but I was what they call a corporate broker, so advising companies on fundraising and relations with shareholders rather than ringing up inst- inst- you know, investors and saying, you know, BP's cheap, why don't you buy a few of these, that kind of thing. Robert, uh, another show we did recently is with the the very distinguished British financial journalist, Edward Chancellor. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He has a new book out called The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. Yeah. As a, as a non-banker, I always thought of banks as taking people's money and earning interest on them. But of course, that's wrong, isn't it? Well, it's not, no, it's not entirely wrong. I mean, it depends on the kind of bank. I mean, deposit-taking banks do exactly that. I mean, traditionally, the way they made money was they took deposits in, they lent them out, and the, the majority of the money they made was on the difference between the rate at which they lent the money and the rate that they paid to the depositors. Um, but over time, they got into other activities, and they see, um, you know, the depositors' money, plus obviously their own capital, to engage in other activities, some of which were higher risk, like uh, like trading, uh, asset management, you know, advising companies, that you know, that kind of thing. And you know, again, particularly after the two thousand and eight financial crisis, there was a 
there was a whole discussion and a lot of government um, uh, kind of examination into the question of, well, how can we get our banks to go back to being essentially boring utilities that take deposits and lend them out to people to, to make productive investments or for home mortgages or, or whatever it is. And indeed, quite a number of the banks have gone exactly in that direction. So if you look at, um, I don't know, a bank like Lloyd's uh, or a bank like um, NatWest, I mean, they've essentially wound down, or very substantially wound down their investment banking operations and have gone back to being predominantly uh, commercial. So if you take a bank like Barclay, we're actively involved in the investment banking business for good or ill. And, um, you know, there's a continuing discussion amongst activist shareholders and analysts as to whether that's the right path. For Robert, um, how, in, in terms of making sense of, of your story and the story of, of banking, private banking, merchant banking in the United Kingdom in the 80s and 90s, mm. do we need to begin with Mrs. Thatcher? Was she... Was it was she the the orchestrator of, of what I remember was called the Big Bang, the theory in the in the city somehow changing the economics of uh, of, of, of of British of, of, of the British economy yeah. to make it more and more not just banking centric or city centric but financialized. Um, well, the answer is yes. Yes and no. Basic Bang did was it opened up the city, which had been a closed shop dominated by stock exchange member firms. And the only people who were allowed to own stock exchange member firms were the partners who worked in them. It opened up the city to international capital. Uh, and it was a product of a, a court case which was threatened the previous Labour government, but which was then taken up by the first Thatcher government to break open what they saw as restrictive practices. Because up until then, commissions were fixed. So if you wanted to buy some shares or sell some shares, you had to pay a fixed commission and you wouldn't negotiate. Depending on how much business you were doing, you couldn't negotiate down those commission rates. So this is a, this is a good thing in a way. It opened up the private club, the exclusive club of upper, uh, upper class white men in, in, in the London city. To everybody, is that fair? Is that at least the idea or the ideal of the Big Bang? No, absolutely right. So the idea was you can um, uh, exactly open up the old boys club, allow in external capital, and then you can use the uh, you know you can use that capital to facilitate investment in you know in productive. But what actually happened was that um, all the old stock exchange firms. Uh, essentially entered into agreements to sell themselves because they could, um, you know, they could capitalize and then sell the value of the goodwill in their firm to, to, to a bank, usually a bank. So all of them did that with the exception of Casanova and the partners of Casanova, and I was just a kid at that point. In fact, I hadn't even joined when that decision was taken, uh, decided that they didn't want to go down that route and they stayed independent. But... Um, but all the others sold out. And they, the, the whole point was they tried to form these big financial supermarkets, which were going to take over the, you know, all the business of all the companies and force out the remaining independents. I mean, it didn't work out that way. And a lot of these so-called financial supermarkets never really achieved profitability or fulfilled the promise of their, of their creation. 
So, so do you buy uh, Oliver Bullough's thesis about the city of London becoming the butler to the world, or is that a, uh, an unfair generalization? Well, I haven't read the book, although I've read I've read the reviews, but I think it's hard. You can to probably argue. pretty much imagine what he argued. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. I mean, I think it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue against, really, isn't it? If you look at the, uh, you know, you look at the legal representation more recently on. Um, you know, oligarchs, uh, you know, trying to gag journalists or trying to intimidate people who've written critical books about the Russians or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, it's the legal or most of it, but, it, you know, I think it's a shaming trend and it's the kind of business that these firms shouldn't be doing. I mean, if you talk about money laundering, I mean, I, I've sat on boards since I left Kazimov and one of the main things you just spend your time discussing when you sit on all of the firm company is your money laundering controls. And yet it does seem that there are still um, institutions that play fast and loose with the rules. And, yeah, and that's what Vogel uh, yeah. spends his life uncovering. So yeah. is, is the, if there is a moral in, in the story of Blue Blood, is it that Casanova held out that they had a degree of morality, they maintained a, not just an independence, but clung to the old principles and that that, in retrospect, was a good thing. Is that a, a fair conclusion to your analysis of, of this period? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was wary in writing. I mean, the, the reality is, uh, Andrew, that we ended up selling the firm to J.P. Morgan. I mean, that's the yeah. Problem. And I want to get to that. And yeah. I know that uh, you're not uh, so, in blue blood. You're not just, uh, so to speak, whitewash, white whitewashing Casanova. But, but in principle, no, is that old style banking principle? It's interesting. We did a show with Daniel Gross, who uh, American journalist who has a writer, uh, a book, a new book out about Edmund Safra, Banker's Journey. Uh, and again, he idealizes Safra as a, as a, I guess, a principled banker in contrast to many contemporary bankers. But, but back to Casanova, if, if, if all the banks had clung to the principles, do you think we'd be better off? Uh, I think we probably would have uh, avoided a number of the financial scandals and the associated costs that, that, that came about. But I think, I mean, I, um, I tried to avoid moralizing when I was writing the book because, you know, the reality is that running a business along the old lines that we used to run the business in the 1980s and into the 1990s just became not possible because... I'm afraid the reality was that the clients, you know, they might have been a bit, the corporate clients in particular, they might have been a bit sort of dewy-eyed about um, the, the idea of having this sort of independent advisor who was very, um, uh, you know, kind of focused on their, their interests and not putting their own interests first. And Casimo was like that. We, we, it really was. But, um, but the fact is whether they were prepared to pay for it in such a way that you could earn a living on that basis was much more difficult. So the reason we ended up doing the deal with J.P. Morgan is that we needed, it wasn't good enough just to be a, a you know, an excellent UK-focused, um, you know, investment bank, helping people raise capital, go public, uh, buy and sell shares. You know, we needed to be able to, to help people borrow money. We needed to be able to give people advice on a global basis. If they bought a big business, we needed to help them hedge the currency risk with derivatives all this kind of stuff. And um, 
you know, that was simply the reality of advising large companies. The whole relationship between companies and their advisors became much more transactional and much less relationship-based as it had been in the in the 80s. And, and I assume you have a degree of nostalgia for that. You made the news back in 2008 when you stepped down as uh, CEO. How long yeah. were you CEO? Uh, when did you join Casanova and how long did you run it for? I joined in 1985 and I left in 2008. So I was there for 23 years and I was chief executive for the last seven years. So we used to be a private partnership, which didn't have a chief executive. It had a senior partner. And then when we became a company in 2001, I became chief executive at that point, first jointly and then on my own. And then negotiated the joint venture with JP Morgan, which went on for about four years. I left at that point. And then I think about a year and a half later, JP Morgan bought the other 50%. So I was running the firm for about seven years. You've mentioned JP Morgan several times. Clearly that was a, a defining moment in the history of the bank and also in terms of your relationship. What, what's the big deal about the JP Morgan? I mean, obviously they're an American bank. Did that change everything? Was this Casanova selling out essentially and becoming like everybody else? Well, I mean, the short answer to that ultimately is probably yes. But I mean, we did it in a very unusual way because generally the history of these, of these transactions has been very unhappy. So what happens is, you know, big bank buys small independent firm. There's a lot of talk about how wonderful it's going to be, but within a year to 18 months, um, small independent firm doesn't like operating under the umbrella of a big bank. Big bank gets fed up with the subsidiary, fires everybody, and everyone sort of, you know, wonders what, you know, what that was all about. The way we did it uh, was rather than have a single event where they bought 100% of the business, we sold them 50% of the business. I mean, it's too complicated to go into the ins and outs of it, but that was the, 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 the net effect is they bought half the business. We had a, it's called an independent governance structure so neither side had full control. We actually had management control. So we, of the three um, full-time management roles, we had all three of them. But we ended up in this sort of slightly uneasy, um, I mean, business-wise, it was extremely successful from day one, but, but we ended up in this slightly uneasy standoff for about three and a half years uh, over, you know, who was really... So what's the... I mean, excuse the, the, the bluntness of this question, Robert. Why, why did you write this book? What do you want people to learn about your story? Well, it's, no, it's a fair question. Why did I write it? For two, for two reasons. One, one, I think for a certain type of person, it's an interesting story. I mean, Casanova had, um, it had a kind of unique status in the London market. And I think the, mis the mystique that surrounded it, and this was nothing to do with me. This was really going back long before I joined the firm. Uh, the mystique that surrounded it meant that people who take an interest in financial markets, particularly UK and, and in the UK scene, found it a fascinating place. The fact that it didn't sell out at Big Bang, the fact that it went on to thrive, the JP Morgan deal, all of that. So I thought it was an interesting story to tell. Um, but also, I think there are, you know, with, without wanting to sound too pretentious about it, I think there are lessons there that, that are applicable to other types of business. So it's about how do you take a, you know, a, a relatively small family control owner managed business and grow it into something which is more of a sort of grown up investment bank? And then there's the whole thing about, you know, if you go into bed with a big bank, particularly a big American bank, what are the cultural 
stresses and strains you're likely to, to encounter and what are the best way of, of trying to deal with those. So, you know, I, I felt that there were, there were some aspects of the story which had more general application. What's the difference broadly in cultural terms between uh, young British and men and I guess some women who go into banking and the Americans? Is there a cultural difference between American and British bankers and banking? Well, it's very, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly there's a difference, a cultural difference in the banks. I mean, the irony was that if J.P. Morgan, obviously it's an American bank, but of the people who we were interacting with day to day in our, when, in our joint venture phase, I mean, hardly any of them were actually Americans. A lot of them were Brits, uh, quite a lot of them were continental Europeans. And, you know, one point I say in the book, you know, we were, the, we were the same kind of people. We'd been to the same schools, the same universities, and yet because the incentive system within the firms was different, people behaved differently. And I don't mean incentives just in the sense of pay, but the kind of behavior that was rewarded as opposed to penalized was completely different. Um, so Casanova, you know, and in a way you can criticize it with hindsight as having been a bit naive, but Casanova was a very, I mean, it was a genuinely a very moral organization. It put the client's interests first. If it didn't feel it tried to give the right advice, even though it would have, you know, potentially earned more money telling the client what they wanted to hear. You know, boasting or playing up your own role in transactions. I mean, if you did that kind of thing, the people around you would just pile on you and you would invite ridicule. Whereas someone like JP Morgan, and I think it's not unique to them, I think it's a feature of big banks, bigging up your own role, you know, claiming to have been involved in transactions and generated fees that actually you hadn't or you were only peripherally involved with, this kind of thing. It, it's all in a day's work. And if you don't do it, you're simply not playing the game. And people don't think, oh, this person is, you know, kind of moral and doing the right thing. They think this person is not showing sufficient grit and they think less of you because of it. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of deeply ingrained in the culture of these organizations it's it's an interesting contrast some people might be listening and thinking well the the aristocratic ethic of 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 being laid back and not engaging in sales or capitalism is all very well but the bank was still making significant amounts of money you were still very well paid still had your private dining rooms and your exclusive club so is there really a difference between the, the, the aristocratic ethic, perhaps, of a traditional bank and the capitalist ethic of a, an international bank like J.P. Morgan? Well, I think there, I think there is. Again, I, wouldn't, again, and I don't want to appear to be getting on a, a moral high horse because that's really not... Well, that's um, why I had you on the show, Robert. Otherwise, it's boring. You've got to, you've got to take some moral oh, position. No, no, Otherwise, no, no, there, there's no story here. I'll answer your no. I'll answer your question. Now, I think that there's a big difference because, and it's very explicit because a firm like Casanova, and it was true of a lot of British firms of that era, you had clients, and they were your clients, and you were their bank or your broker. And once you, as it were, got that mandate, you didn't then have to fight for business. If your client was going to do something, you know, needed to raise money or wanted to buy a business, they would phone up their bank and their broker, and off you went. Um, a big a bank like JP Morgan doesn't operate like that. I mean, and this is the way the whole industry has gone. They, they talk to everybody. They don't have clients in the way that we would have had back in the 80s. They talk to everyone and they try to do as much business with everyone as they possibly can. And if, you know, if 
a company rings up JP Morgan and says, you know, we want to buy, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, if BP brings up JP Morgan and says, we want to buy Shell or whatever, whatever the, the transaction is, JP Morgan does, doesn't just say, yes, that's fine. What they do is they then, there's a whole separate process under which they think, well, is this in JP Morgan's interests? Is this the right client to be backing? Should we be back? How much money are we going to make out of this trade? If we do it and we lose Shell as a client or whatever it is, how much money are we going to lose that we might have, might have made from backing Shell or whatever, whatever the... So it is a... Philosophically, it is a completely different approach. But the reality is, as I say, that's the way the whole industry has gone. So you could say what you described as the kind of old aristocratic laid-back way, which wasn't that laid-back, but it's certainly laid-back compared with the Goldman Sachs or a or a Morgan Stanley, for example, uh, ultimately proved not to be a, a sustainable business model, at least not in the areas of the business that we were operating in. And what does that say? That says, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's just a feature of a, of a more sophisticated market where large companies are capable of looking after themselves and they treat their bankers more as counterparties rather than trusted advisors. Or you can lament it, and you can say, "Well, it's it's led to a to a to a a, a business environment where there's less trust, uh, less confidentiality, and um, you know is ultimately less satisfying for both clients and bankers." Um, you, uh, from your your home in East Sussex, and as the CEO of Casanova for for, for for a while, and as a banker in the City of London. You must have had a front row on, shall we say, the the decline, the continued decline, and now the crisis of the British economy. Um, as both a banker and as I assume a British citizen, what do you make of what's happened in the United Kingdom, certainly since Brexit, but really in the first twenty-three years of the twenty-first century? Well. I mean, it was all going frightfully well, wasn't it? And then, um, you know, I think the fall, well, I think the fallout from the financial crisis certainly had a lasting effect. I mean, there's nothing terribly original about... 2009, about, yeah? Yeah, 2008, 2009. I think there was a, a, um, a slow burn and enduring undermining of people's faith in institutions, in, um, in financial institutions, which, you know, open path to the kind of populist politics which uh, has resulted in, in Brexit. And, and some of this was justified. I mean, it what, what... No, no, completely, completely. I, I actually think that, um, well, I think there were two aspects and which I would point to. One is I think the government, and it was the government because they, they owned significant stakes in most of the banks after the financial crisis because they you know they had to bail the banks out by putting equity capital in they fell for this argument that we have to pay everybody big bonuses and retention bonuses otherwise everyone's going to leave and the business will fall apart so the general public saw bankers who had been involved in business which had then had to be bailed out by the taxpayer making off with seven-figure bonus numbers, and they didn't like what they saw. And they were completely justified in not liking what they saw. They, I mean, I've gone on record in the past as talking about how managers of banks and 
in that in that case, government people, government ministers who are overseeing them are far too quick to give in to these kinds of threats. And actually, they should have faced them down. I think the other the other trick that was missed is. Uh, um, I mean, I think there was a much stronger case for saying that investment banks and um, uh, you know deposit taking type commercial and retail bank retail banks should have been split apart. They went through this sort of complicated um, process of ring fencing the retail bank to try to insulate it from the risks in the investment banks, and they kind of ducked the whole question of, stru- of total structural separation. And I think there was a much stronger argument to separate the two. I mean, it's kind of happened de facto, as I was saying earlier on, because quite a lot of the big banks have decided that they get a better stock market rating by getting out of the investment banking business. But there's still one or two diehards that, you know, that insist on, on remaining in those businesses. So, yes, I think uh, I would be very critical of, of that. And I think that caused a lot of damage. Having said that, I'm actually pretty bullish on the UK. I think that... Um, uh, you know, in the longer term, you know, whatever view you take of Brexit, whatever view you take of what's likely to happen in the next election, I think that, that it's finally being talked about, the, the negative economic effects of Brexit, and that um, the likelihood is that we're going to have, I don't think we're going to rejoin the EU anytime soon, but I think we're going to have a more constructive, closer relationship. So I'm actually quite bullish on the UK in the medium term. Robert, to end, uh, do you have any children? I've got five children, Andrew. Wow, congratulations. Um, I'm not sure. Congratulations, whatever. Um, I have two. Would you, uh, a couple of final questions connected. Um, I'm not sure if any of your kids followed you into banking, but if they came to you and said, well, should I do banking? Um, is, it a good, is it a good profession? Is it helpful for society? What would you say to them and what would you suggest to young people who are thinking of going into banking because it's interesting and lucrative, but also perhaps as a way of, of, of making societies better, richer broadly, not just richer for themselves? Well, I think, well, my, my oldest son did go into banking for a while, although he, he didn't stick at it for very long and he's actually in fintech out in your part of the world. But um I think the answer to your question is if, if, if you want to go into banking, and, and again, just to repeat the point I made earlier, banking covers a very broad range of activities. Yeah. Go into it with your eyes open, understanding what you're doing, understanding the kind of uh, work ethic that's required, the, the years of slog that are going to um, be necessary before you uh, attain a position of seniority. You know, I think you can make a you can make a cogent case that, that the right kind of banking supports society. Again, if you're talking about helping co- companies, startups raise money, for example, uh, companies raise investment purposes. Uh, but other types of banking, I think, you know, it's pretty hard to make a case for from a making the world better standpoint. But I would never, I think most, the, the honest answer to your question is I think most people who went into banking, even those of us like me, and I, I loved most of my career, not all of it, but most of it, uh, would probably not necessarily encourage our kids to go into it. It's not the same business that when we joined it. 